Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back and I'm with Martha Beck. Martha, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here. And uh, many of you, of course, know who Martha is. And if you don't, you should get to know. And right, Martha's <laughs> written a number of different uh, best selling books that really can help. And so, what we do here at Mind Rolling, I mean, I hope to do, is translate. Whatever it is, from whatever tradition or from whatever individual, into as basic, uh, how can we get our life in balance? That's that's our, that's my main thing here, and then Love on it. from there, and dealing with the mini me that we all have to deal yeah. with on the day to day. So, mm -hmm. uh, Martha, uh, many of you, uh, as I said, who do know her, and many of you who don't, whoever it may be pick up on Martha Beck, okay? Because there's a lot of great information there. Just a lot. I only heard of myself last week, so yeah. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, now, uh, Martha, you just did a thing at 1440. Now, 1440.org, yeah. uh, 1440 Multiversity is a, a sponsor partner of ours. We have very much great aligned values, as you can imagine. Mm. And um, so it's an opportunity... A, to say, hey, everyone, go to 1440.org and check it out. Uh, did you have a good time there? Let's just talk. Oh, my gosh. The Redwood Forest in a gentle rain? I mean, who needs enlightenment? I, I had the Redwood Forest. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful place, wonderful people. Go. Yeah. Go there. Yes, yes. And great, great workshops. And, uh, and now, Martha, you did a workshop yeah. uh, called Surfing the Waves of Change. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, the book that I picked up on just to get to know you better uh, was a book that came out some years ago, uh, Finding mm -hmm. Your Way in a Wild New World. Now, it came out before the current president that we have was elected. Yes, it did. Is this, yeah, it's precognition a little bit, uh, but then it exploded, and I suppose the book would be, well, pretty much the same, might have some other interesting aspects to it, no? Maybe, but yeah, um, I, I have a PhD in sociology, so I basically knew from the time I was in graduate school, back when there were still dinosaurs roaming the earth, that <laughs> we were looking at a pace of change and unprecedented experiences that, on a worldwide scale that have actually never affected the human race as deeply as they are now. I've always known that, so I've been sort of bracing myself for it and also trying to figure out how to survive in that kind of a world. So I was, <laughs> when at the election, I was very glad that I'd been doing that for a few years because it, I think it rocked a lot of us. Hmm. But hey, that's, that's the way it's gonna go. It rocks one way to rock the other way. Yeah. Well, it is a little extreme now, uh, I have to say. The amount of uh, destruction is pretty radical. And uh, so, but then the topic of, uh, of your thing at uh, 1440, Surfing the Ways of Change. Uh, yeah. This is something we better get our surfboards out yeah. and start practicing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Yeah. I mean, I'd heard the phrase, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Everybody's heard that, right, in this community. But the way I started thinking about it was that right after the tsunami took out Sendai, Japan in 2011, there was this mesmerizing video. It's still there online. You go in and put in um, tsunami raw footage. And one guy ran up on a hill 
and filmed this wave coming in for six full minutes, which is a long time online. And at first you think, because it comes in underneath, right? It doesn't come as a wall of water. It comes up from underneath. And you think, wow, that's going to that's gonna damage the street. And then you're like, wait, it's getting into the buildings? This is crazy. And then cars start to float. And then all the buildings are, you know, people would be neck deep. And then it keeps rising and it keeps rising. Then it's up to the second floor. Then it's up to the third floor. Same way. At about five minutes, this strange dust rises over the whole thing. And you're like, what? And then you realize all the buildings have been ripped off their foundations at once and they all go away. One wave in six minutes and the city is gonzo. So I watched this over and over and I thought, this is change. This is what it's doing. No. This is the level of change. Hmm. And I accidentally hit a different thing as I was repeating it. And I got another video of a surfer catching what he thought would be a 20-foot wave. And it turns out to be a freak monster wave that goes up to 70 feet high. And it just, they, from a helicopter, they pull back as this wave rises and rises and rises. And he's like, this tiny little thing on top of seven stories of vertical water, he comes down the face and the thing breaks over him like the wrath of God. And you think, he is so dead because it's just foam. And then, boom, out he comes. Woo! I watched these two videos over and over and I thought, the only way we're going to handle this is not to run into the institutions we've created and hope they keep us safe because they're all going. The way to surf change these days is you get pretty much naked and run straight into it with a board. And that's it. That's how we're going to survive and have a great ride, by the way. But that's what I that's how I think every day. Right. All right. Can you take that analogy and, and give it to us in maybe an example of dealing with what we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis? I, I don't have to. Absolutely. So, for example, um, many of us are very distressed about the environment. There's global weirding. Things are going strange in all the climactic patterns everywhere. It's frying in Australia. It's freezing in, like, Alabama. <laughs> And, and it's very freaky. Like, what do you do with that level of change as one little individual? A way of running into an institution would be to say, oh, the government will do something or science will figure it out. Scientists have already told us that with the measures they have, the ecosystems are already doomed. Even if we implied, sorry, implemented every single thing we know how to do technologically right now, it would just slow it down a little. We would be headed toward the edge of ecological disaster at 20 miles an hour instead of 80 miles an hour, but we wouldn't stop. So how do you cope when your best isn't big enough? I refuse to give up. I think we're here for a reason. And I believe the way it's gone in my life is first I tried to figure out how to run the world by getting a doctorate in sociology. And for a long time and still, I banded together with a group of people in Africa who rehabilitate ecosystems and have healed a patch of the earth larger than Switzerland and have calculated that it would only take $58 billion to heal every ecosystem on earth. And this is people with their hands out there. But then it got, you know, I started getting old and things were still speeding up. And I was like, the way that I was coping emotionally, among other ways by meditating, and by reading Ram Dass and doing the stuff that you do, watching the stuff that you do, participating in that stuff, 
there came a point where just by sitting in my room alone, I began to touch something within me that was so infinitely powerful that my self dissolved and I was everything. And I'm sure you've had that experience too. If you have, it's much more real than what we call reality. It's like waking up from a dream. It's like waking up from a nightmare. And you realize that since you are consciousness, you are connected to a force much more powerful than all the science we have. And that the best way to access it is to go inside, strip everything down, strip away all your illusions. That's like taking off almost all your clothes. Go out there by facing what you're afraid of and then find a way to balance. And the way to stay balanced is by disciplining your mind to tell stories that feel true. And it seems like a very, like it's miles away from packing thorn brush into a ravine to change the water flow. But it changes the landscape of the inner life and it accesses all the power that is. And as you do that, things around you begin to change and transform. And I know at this point it sounds very magical and a lot of my readers are like, yay, it's the secret, we will all win the lottery. It's not that. And it kind of is that. <laughs> but the, the catch is you have to be completely without illusions to access that power. And it's a daily job to clear away the clutter of the mind and become the consciousness that can help you survive these changes and potentially even do something to help. Yes, there. indeed. And um, this is all we talk about every day. Just that. Just that. Yep. You know, uh, every day, every day. Yeah. And uh, courage is a, a big deal yeah. about all of this courage. Yeah. Uh, so let's get because uh, uh, I do want to talk about some of the things you wrote in this book, because there's some cool. really, really great, profound stuff. Um, let's talk about true nature. Mm. OK, so, uh, you know, my understanding is the buddhist understanding of true nature which to me is no different than soul ramdas mm -hmm. only talks about soul and we get together with people like jack cornfield who teach right. at our retreats and he's perfectly fine because he's not caught in any kind of duality around anatta and soul no soul soul so uh, right. you tell me though uh true nature well if you look at your true nature, it's what you essentially are. So I believe there are different aspects of our true nature. For one thing, we are animals. We're biological organisms that have, we've inherited an evolutionarily selected pattern of behavior, which includes being very focused on fear and hierarchy and other things that in the Buddhist tradition, they would call ego. I think of it as just being baboons in socks, you know, <laughs> baboons are obsessed with rank and hierarchy and who has what. Yeah. So we've got that to deal with it. And that's part of our nature. It's not evil. But then we die and we take off the baboon suit. And I think there are times when you can find the part that's not in the baboon suit to begin with. And I believe that that is real. I had a near death experience when I was 28. And after one of those people can tell you that consciousness is a product of the body and you just kind of chuckle inside and go, no, 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 the body is the product of consciousness. So a deeper true nature, even than our biology is our, you could call it soul, you could call it consciousness, you could call it essence. 
it has no name. You could call it the nameless, like Leonard Cohen does. Mm. When you get to that, even the baboon self falls away, and there's nothing but pure peace, a stillness that is so completely calm, and yet it within it, it can generate everything. And you recognize it not just as a thing, but as what you actually are. And in those, for me, fragmentary little flashes, that's the truest thing that I can find. Now, opposed to nature, if you kind of look at antonyms, is culture. So everything that we're taught by culture and that does not come inherently to us when we're born is arbitrary. So stories like you have to have money, that's our culture. It's not the culture of the Khoisan in Africa. It's not the culture of any traditional society that's existed for 100,000 years. But we imprint culture so deeply that we think it's who we are and what, what is real. So finding true nature means stripping away culture and basically going wild. <laughs> and um, that, of course, doesn't sound good to people who are caught in culture. It sounds dangerous. Yeah. Yep. It is. And brings up, <laughs> it is, and, the, and brings up more fear, too. Yeah, for sure. I love the way this, so uh, the book, everybody, Finding Your Way in a Wild New World, and which now is called Finding Your Way in an Even Wilder New World. Actually, I wrote a novel after that oh, called really? Diana Herself about a woman who goes into the woods of California and um, meets a talking pig. And it, it was it's basically the most realistic book I've ever written. But the, the nemesis figure in it was a reality TV star who decides to run for president. And I did no. that before. Yeah, I mean, like he's exactly oh. like the president we have now. His name is um, Roy Richards, which mean the, means King Dix. <laughs> and he's the embodiment of ego. And she is the, <laughs> the nature that is trying to wake up. And she has to go wild herself. And it was weird because I just I was just like, let's write fantasy fiction. <laughs> it turned out to mirror the real world oh, more closely than anything else I'd written. Oh, my God. Oh. So if you want to get really wild, I call it bewilderment or bewilderment. Bewilderment. You just get confused and then you're at don't know mind and then you're bewildered, which is bewildered. And then you're fine. Listen, everybody, you've just heard somebody, Martha is prescient, right? Prescient. I try to be. No, we all are. Like, there's, there's only one of us, after all. Yes. And it exists outside of time. Eternity doesn't mean for a long time. It means external to time, which we know isn't linear. That's just physics. So part of us is out there knowing everything all the time and playing with pretending that linear time is here and that we wear these meat suits. Yeah. And it's fun. Meat puppets is uh, our uh, Ramdas called meat puppets. Meat puppets. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. All right. So please, can you tell us the story of going to Africa that starts out of the book, which is about the rhinoceros? Mm, yeah, yeah. And I have encountered them myself in around the same place. I wasn't. I don't, it wasn't the same park, but yeah. Please, this whole of- thing is fabulous, and uh, it, you can go on because I was totally entertained. All right. Yeah, this is when I when I go to hang out with my friends in Africa who actually um, 
inherited a huge bankrupt cattle farm and decided to replace the thornbrush that was there with no animals with natural vegetation. And they changed the course of the rivers. And it was just two brothers, two teenage brothers. It wasn't like a whole squadron. And eventually they brought the water back and then the grassland, then the grazers came in and then the predators and then the great big animals like elephants and rhinos. So I banded together with these people about 20 years ago. And I go there every year. And one of the first times we were there, I got to go out to have a tracking lesson. Tracking is the best metaphor for how to find the life you're meant to live that you will ever experience. If you have a chance to learn to track animals, do it. Even if you don't know why, because I think it just, the brain has evolved to do that. And it's the reason we love murder mysteries. It's like evidence, forensic evidence of something that happened. And you start to feel the animal and it's, it's a mind blower. It really is. So I was out on one of my first tracking lessons and we'd started with rhinoceros because they're fairly easy to track. Not as easy as you would think. They are pretty slippery for huge animals the size of a suburban. So one problem you get with beginners is they focus on the ground. Experienced trackers will see one footprint and then they look up ahead for the next footprint, which may be 100 yards away. So they can run as they track the animal and that way they can catch up with it. But I was just poking along. But one thing about rhinos is they don't go in straight lines. They go around. They are, they're not very bright. They're like, water. I will go water. <laughs> sleep. Must sleep. <laughs> so they're kind of weird. And I was following this track. And there was a woman behind me, I mean, in front of me who was tracking. And I was looking. We were both looking down. And then somebody from behind us tapped us both on the shoulder. And I looked up. And the rhinoceros was literally right in front of us oh. and was just standing there like food okay fine there's this rhinoceros with a three foot long i can't even show you on the screen how long the horn is and i thought oh this this will be okay she seems calm i knew it was a she because she had a calf with her now the problem is that baby rhinos are very curious and they make this sound that goes Ooh. and so <laughs> this little rhino was like he looked at us he was like, wow, wow, wow. And he started, he circled around behind us. The one place you do not want to be is between yeah. a rhinoceros mother and her calf. Oh God. So she's done, they can't see very well and they're not bright at all. So she starts circling, looking for the guy. Where's he going? Where's he going? And you can feel the tremors on the ground as she moves because she's so enormous. And I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to die. And it was wonderful because like, what a cool way to die, right? <laughs> no, no hospitals here. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be gored through the middle. So I was resigned to my own death in that moment in a very happy way. And when I did that, I dropped the desire to be alive. Like I genuinely didn't care. And suddenly what happened instead of my dying was this like massive bolt of what felt like an illuminating idea. And the idea was we can still save the world. We can still save ourselves. And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. And this was right at the beginning of my whole thing with Africa. And so I was like, oh, I guess I have to live. I wonder what we're going to do now. Fortunately, the African trackers with us were incredibly good at this and had gone over and started herding the little rhino back toward the mother. So 
he finally saw her and scampered over and then she whirled and trotted off and they trotted off together the way they do. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I'm alive. And now I have to do something. (laughs) (laughs) It was good fun. Yeah. But it, you know, in the book, it it is a prompt about healing uh, that experience. And well, before that, what I left out was my whole life, I say this now openly, I didn't admit it for many decades, but I was actually kind of born feeling like I was going to be a part of something significant that would happen on the earth. Not a big part, but a part. And that it would have, I I kept like, as a tiny kid, I memorized like, by the time I was two, I knew the names of 700 mammals in the book of knowledge and obsessed with, with nature, obsessed with learning everything I could. And um, by the time I got to high school, I still felt it very strongly, but I thought it has something to do with the change in the way people think. Okay, well, maybe I'm supposed to be an academic like my father. And I started noticing at that point, people in crowds, like I'd go to debate meets at other high schools, and every now and then there would be someone that I would look at and I'd think, oh, you're, you're in it. You're in this thing. You're part of this. You're on my team. And it was weird. And I never admitted it to anyone. And it it got stronger through college. And then in graduate school, when I started teaching college, students started coming to me and telling me the same story that they had felt this way their whole lives too. Eventually, I decided that this was something about the transformation of human consciousness. Now, I was not reading new age literature. I'd been at Harvard since I was 17, you know, stayed for master's PhD, not into the new age. I just, this all came from out from inside me. And I started calling it the team. (laughs) And um, when I saw the rhinoceros and I thought I was going to die, it was the mission of the team that exploded in my mind. And I thought, oh my gosh, the team is here to save the world. By this time, I was convinced there are millions and millions of us. I don't know how many. But the interesting thing was all these people that I'd met who matched that also matched the archetype that is recognized by traditional cultures as being the archetype of the healer or the medicine person or the shaman or the sangoma or whatever it happens to be in that culture. And that's why I started to study the the methodologies of these ancient peoples to see what they had that we can still use to heal the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, great... um great stuff in the book about indigenous cultures and what we have lost by not doing the opposite of what we should have done, killed them instead of uh, learned from them. But uh, this is karma. Some of that karma in my mind is, is coming to bear on us now, uh, actually. Oh, and how, and how it really is. I mean, it's in, in the, Joseph Campbell's archetype of the hero, you know, the Campbellian way, there's 17 stages, but there's a call to adventure, which is at first refused. And then the, the hero is pushed to go on this adventure, whether he or she wants to or not. And then goes on something called the road of trials. And at the very worst point, the absolute nadir of this mission, what's called the catabasis or the going down below all things, Um, And it usually happens under the earth and they meet with like the nemesis monster and they have to do battle and everything. And it basically decides the course of whether they will just 
have a tragic ending or they'll go through a transformation and come out the other side with a gift to take back to the people. We're in a catabasis. I sure as heck hope this is the catabasis because if it gets a whole lot worse than this, holy smokes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So we're all on the adventure. We're all on the adventure together. Uh, speaking of adventure, Martha, do you mind telling us about your uh, the NDA experience? Because it's something, actually, something that Ramdas and I talk about a lot. He's got a bunch sure. of literature on it. I mean, he's getting to the point where it might be good to know something around that. Uh, yeah. We're all at that point, by the way. I don't care if you're 16. Start thinking about yeah. this. There's a bus with your name on it right outside the door. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> but, you know, there could be a rhinoceros any moment. It might not look like a rhinoceros to you. But, yeah, so um, I was 28. And I was having all kinds of weird autoimmune disorders. And unknown to me, something broke loose inside my body, some scar tissue, actually, from a trauma much earlier. And I started to bleed internally, but they didn't know what was wrong with me. So they rushed me into a surgery. And, um, uh, you know, they taped my eyes closed and fastened my arms to the thing and, and put me out. And then... I woke up and I was just lying there looking at these surgical lights and thinking, why am I looking at the surgical lights when my eyes are taped shut? This is strange. And then I sat up and that was even stranger because I was like fastened to the table and I could see the surgeons working on me and I could hear what they were saying and they found the bleed and they were closing it off. And I was like, this is just weird. And I lay back and I didn't flatline. Um, I just became conscious and I looked back at the surgical lights and they were extremely bright, as you know. And in the middle of them was a ball of light about this big, uh, like a golf ball. And it was exquisite. Mm. Like there aren't any words. They say we can only see a trillionth of the available light spectrum. It felt to me like I could see the whole light spectrum in this light. It was the most beautiful thing beyond anything I could imagine. And it was just a ball of light. I mean, what could be that fancy about a ball of light? Just wait, you'll get there. Um, so as I watched it, it began to expand in size and it's, it would go into things instead of bouncing off them. And then it touched my body and seemed to go into my body. And I felt this unbelievable peace and sweetness and warmth and love. And I had never felt anything close to this. This absolutely overwhelming comfort. And I started to cry and my body was crying. So there were tears coming down from my taped eyes. And one of the surgeons saw and got very anxious because he thought I could feel what was happening. And oh, wow. he told the anesthesiologist, she's, she's in pain, she's in pain. So the anesthesiologist he later told me because I quizzed him to see if he'd given me a fancy drug and I wanted more. But he said, no, he did not give me a fancy drug. He was going to up the anesthesia and he heard a voice that said, don't do anything. She's crying because she's happy. Wow. Later, he told me that he was shaking and ashen. He said, I, did I do the right thing? And I was like, oh, dude, you have no idea. He said in 30 years of medical practice, that had never happened to him. 
but he just listened to it. So in the meantime, I'm having this reunion with this light, which was, I truly think that we don't have them because it's so hard to bear when it goes away. I mean, there are two years of frantic loss and depression after the state is gone. But while it's there, all I was doing was laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. And the light was laughing with me. And the reason we were laughing was that I thought suffering was real. I thought mm. this body was real. And the light kept saying, you said you weren't going to forget. You said you could never forget what was real. And you totally bought the whole thing. Oh, we're all going to suffer and then we die. And I was like, I know. I said I wouldn't forget and I did. And it was just pure joy, absolutely pure joy. And then it said, um, it said a couple of things. It, it said, you, you think you're meant to die before you feel this way. No, you have to live so that you feel this way. And the second thing was, I'll always be here even though you won't see me. Little corollary, like 20 years later, my son who has Down syndrome told me after a friend's funeral that I said, you were very brave in the funeral. And he said, well, after the light comes and touches your heart, things aren't so sad. Mm. I was like, a light touched your heart? When was that? And he said, May 10th. I said, like this year? No, five years earlier, a light had shown up in his bedroom and touched his heart, and healed his heart, and then he wasn't so sad. And I said, Well, Adam, you know, it told me that it's always with us, even though we can't see it. And he looked at me and he said, Well, I can see it. <laughs> and I said, You can? He was like, Yeah. I said, Is it where is it? Is it like on the ceiling? Is it in your chest? Is it in your head? He just shook his head and he said, mom, it's everywhere. Wow. So mm. he who has eyes to see, let him see. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That thing of forgetting, boy, those of us, those of us, when I was mentioning, you know, going to earlier, going back with uh, Ram Dass, when you back to India the second time, because I wanted whatever he had. Right. And, and got it and spent a long time with it and it's the same it uh, unbelievable yeah, it? It's the same there's only one it yeah and then proceeded to forget over and over and over and and it took a, a long time to even just get to the point of it's okay you're okay it's you, yep. you're human just start over so yep. Sharon Salzberg, the great, great meditation teacher. Uh, I love her. She says, yeah, just, I mean, it's fantastic. Look what we have. We can start over. When you realize that you're doing practice and you're completely lost in your story, okay, we start over. Yeah. You know, so it's, such it's a, just another game of hide and seek, right? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. No. Well, after a while, you know, for a while after that, for a long while, like decades, all I wanted was to go back there. And that was the object of my meditation. And, and I started to get much, much closer to it. I got to like 85% as happy, but it took many years of meditation. And then at a certain point, I sort of felt like, no, you're not, it's, it's like, I thought I had to die to get there. Now you think you have to be meditating to get there. It's something it said, go out there and in the middle of a traffic jam, in the middle of having the flu, in the middle of having an argument, now find me there. 
Hmm. And it, like everything became meditative practice and everything, including, including things like pain and anger and everything became part of the whole gorgeous pageant that we're here to experience hmm. or maybe. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. You know, and, and you also said somewhere else uh, that's very fitting for what we're talking about. We have these experiences. You had these experiences, which you've just told. Wonderful story, that is. And everyone has an ineffable experience. It might be through a psychedelic, oh. it, whatever. Everybody at some point who has any awareness and and the good uh, karmas to have uh -huh. that awareness to realize this is what we are about, which is true nature yeah. and not our stories. So we have that. And, and I, you know, when I look back, it was about, oh God, I forgot, but I just want you to give it to me back. Okay. Yeah, there, exactly. There, you know, it's like a little child. It's just yep. that kind of thing. And it, it, here's something that, uh, you talked about um, those moments will not last unless you are continuously cultivating them. And yep. irreversible shifts are possible, but sustained transformation requires continuous house cleaning, continuous questioning of your own mental projections, and, and I'm adding in and stories. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with a good friend of mine, uh, Duncan Trussell, who's a podcaster as well, and uh, and we've been talking about the addiction that we experience oh, yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis of our story, of our... Uh -huh. uh, okay. Krishna Dawson, a very close friend, said, yeah, we wake up in the morning with the mo movie of me, which we are yeah. the protagonist, the director, and the producer. I don't know how many podcasts I've done and talked to wonderful people uh, and and brought this up. And it is, and it's exactly what you are saying here, uh, sustained transformation requires continuous house cleaning. Yeah. And, yeah, talk about some of the methodology that you yourself use and that you advise. By the way, uh, Martha is a uh -huh. life coach as well. That's are you what do they call me. Are you I didn't know I was doing that. I know, I it's just a word. I can tell <laughs> meeting you and getting to know you here. It's sitting where we can just sit together and do what we're doing right now, which yeah. is get at the core and look at, you know, be aware of, of uh, the stuff that needs house cleaning. And that's kind of probably yeah. what you do. Um, but yeah, what a little advisal on your side of... of well, right now I'm in the middle of writing a book, which is it's the first thing I've really thought I had that was original for a self-help book since the one you're referencing. And um, it's called The Integrity Cleanse. Mm. Because um, after having that near-death experience, the obsession to get back to it is absolutely overwhelming. Mm. And people said, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So periodically through my life, I've done these things. It started the year after that when I was still in the anguish of not of remembering that light and not seeing it, I decided that I would not tell a single lie all that year, the year of my, after my 29th birthday, I did not tell a single lie for 365 days, not even polite lies, nothing. Um, during that time I left, I lost my job, my profession, my family of origin, the <laughs> religion they raised me, raised me in, all the friends I'd made before the age of 20. I mean, it, it was chaos. 
but it started to bring me back into alignment with that light. I could feel the shimmer of it. You know, I wasn't fully engaged with it, but I could, I could feel it. I could see it, the, the flickers of it. So as I've gotten older, I have, after that year, I decided it was okay to tell polite fibs or I don't know. I decided if I was hiding Jews in the basement and the Nazis came, I would lie and feel good about it. No problem. <laughs> but now I've been on an integrity cleanse now for about three years, which is not about, is this, these are the rules. Know what you really know, feel what you really feel, say what you really mean, and only do what you know feels right in all circumstances, always. So that means like I try not to have a facial expression that doesn't reflect accurately my state of mood no. because that would be a lie. It, it, and, and it's not like I haven't been doing a lot of lying, but there are places where I would, for example, go to a function that I didn't enjoy and pretend to enjoy it. All those little self-betrayals were keeping me from feeling like I was in the presence of that light and fully engaged with it. And so they just have to go. And I, I, I'm writing this book about it that's based on Dante's Inferno because I think he had an enlightenment experience. And it starts out with just wandering around not knowing what's happening to you. Then you go into the hell in, inside your mind, which is full of your stories, and you question every single sto story because every story that causes suffering is illusion. Every story is illusion. But the ones that cause suffering are the ones we have to get rid of. And then you have to go through the process of living your integrity, which he called purgatory, where you actually behave differently. You break cultural patterns and you do what comes from within no matter what. I've gotten a few death threats over that one. And, um, and then, yes, I, I wrote a book about leaving Mormonism and it was not received well in Utah. Oh. <laughs> but then you finally get to this place he called paradise where everything is so harmonious that basically your entire job is to continue opening more and more of your perceptual apparatus to take in more beauty, more light, more harmony. So it's telling the truth and being the truth and living the truth every day of your life. That's my current practice. And I've been at it for a long time and it's still, still very hard work, I have to say. Mm. You, so worth it. You know, one of the most famous things that Neem Karoli Baba told us, and particularly uh, this story is Ramdas's story. Ramdas, love everyone and tell the truth. Over, mm. over and over. And Ramdas yeah. said, the truth is, I don't love everyone. <laughs> and he go, he'd get closer right up to, you know, right up to his face. He's like nose to nose and go, Ramdas, love everyone and tell the truth. And Ramdas, of course, understood who he is, does love everyone. Right. And, and so, you know, that, that all took decades and decades to ensue. And Ramdas says, "Now, uh, that's why that fierce grace. I don't know if you ever saw that movie uh, uh -huh. with Ramdas. Uh -huh. Fierce grace, amazing. And you know, he is being uh, exactly what love everyone, tell the truth. He's now yeah. <laughs> being that. So uh, that's a f that is a fierce discipline. 
to do this. They're all fierce. Yeah, you know, when you when you get to the nitty gritty, I, I mean, in this book I wrote, my editor made me t- take it out, but I said, pure integrity will give you everything you need to be happy and cost you absolutely everything else. Like, <laughs> buckle up. They took that That's out? Right. That's terrible. Yes. I'm like, that's too scary. Nobody do that. <laughs> they won't read it. They'll put down the book. I'm like, all right, well, it's true. But I won't say it quite that way, at least not at first. <laughs> so there are, you know, the love everyone part is always couched in culture is the problem. So that to love everyone and tell the truth means you take every bottle of alcohol away from every alcoholic. You take every um, habit of of falsehood away from everybody who would be better without it and they all scream and yell that you've ripped away their life support and so you have to be i've noticed this with people that i think are are extremely enlightened like rondas or um eckhart tolle byron katie nasargadatta maharaj these people um they can be very fierce and it shocks people or it sounds fierce it's not if you're like looking at it from the perspective of what wants to heal them but it feels harsh because of the, the cultural padding in their brains. And it's an interesting dance to try to be completely honest and still not go so far outside culture that you absolutely frighten everyone away. It's a really, really razor's edge. Yeah. Yeah. I think in India, they have a tradition, uh, such a long tradition of it that they get, they're better at it than most of us. Nope. No? <laughs> no. Oh well. They're better at covering stuff up, is what they're. Except for life, you know, life and death. They're good at, you know, that we we they live through that, you know, really presently. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, they got the yeah. same, just different versions of the same stories going on. Uh, it's the baboon suit. I'm telling you. Yeah, exactly. With socks, I love that. Baboons with socks. Yeah. That's it. Um, no, what you were talking about before a little bit. Um, highly interests me and um, I'm trying to put some stuff together around intuition and trust. Uh, And I talk a lot about trust uh, because I think every one of us has has had an opportunity and has an opportunity to really connect with that deeper part of our true nature Uh and uh trust and yeah. it allows us to take those steps forward. It, it's it, yeah. the courage is involved there as well, but yeah. but really connecting. Uh, I think you have to connect with intuition to get anywhere yeah. near true nature. Do you think? I agree. Um, what I've been writing about um, Dante's metaphor is that he he's completely confused and doesn't know what to do. And what shows up for him is the ghost of his favorite poet, Virgil. And, and obviously that's uh, something he created from his own imagination. It was his way of personifying his intuition. And Virgil says to him, the only way to paradise is through hell, so come with me. And he's terrified, absolutely terrified, keeps passing out. But this poet, this imagination, intuition that he's conjured for himself, keeps you know, shaking him, waking him up and saying, you can do this, we're gonna keep going. We're gonna keep going down into your worst fears we're going to go down and down and down. And anyone who's ever meditated consistently has been into the inferno. And intuition keeps telling us further, further, further. 
in the divine comedy, Dante finally comes to the monster Lucifer, who's trapped in a lake of ice at the very center of the earth. And his intuition says, no, keep going. And he's like, there's no place to go. Keep going. So he climbs onto the body of the devil and starts lowering himself down. And when he gets to like hip level, there's an opening in the in the surface of this ice lake and he thinks he's gonna fall through into space and just drift forever. Instead, he goes down so far that he crosses the center of the earth and he lands with his feet on the ground and he's looking up because he's past the center. And if you go away from the center of the earth, you're going up. So by going down, he goes up. Mm. And it's, in, it's his intuition that keeps telling him, you have to do this incredibly scary counterintuitive thing until the moment when it turns and the end of the inferno is just a few lines and it ends with, and so we came forth and once again beheld the stars. If you can do that, your intuition is trying to get you to do that right this very minute. If you're willing to go, and as you said, it takes so much guts. You have to be suffering a lot to do it, actually. I did. And there comes this moment when you think all is lost and you realize that somehow by going down, you're now going up. And only your intuition is smart enough to guide you to do that. Right. And only through trust, in my mind, can you actually access that. Oh, yeah. As Griffith said, when you trust yourself, you will know how to live. Mm. Yeah. Not the stories we tell our stuff, not ourselves, and not the mini-me's, but certainly that deeper part that uh, yeah. we all access at some point or another we have that you know um, you just sit every day and say what is true what is true what is true what am i what do i know what do i feel what is true it drills down and down and down and down and down until there's just light that's the only thing that's really true yeah one oneness you talk a lot about oneness uh and yeah and uh, it's obviously something very familiar. We, in our own lexicon, the one, uh, to me, I have a hard time with God, actually. It's yeah. tough for well, me. You weren't raised Mormon. I, I will take that problem with God and raise you one Mormonism. <laughs> uh, I can counter with... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but oneness. Yeah, let me have your definition on that, like, uh, so we can be on the same page. Well, what I did in that book was, <clears throat> excuse me, I looked, I, I went and interviewed and read about a lot of healing traditions that were pre-modern. So, you know, shamanistic traditions, medicine people. And I found a lot of people that I thought weren't doing much. You know, it didn't really work. But then there were some that were doing things that I could not <clears throat> I could not explain. And so I, I studied their methodologies. And what I found was a common pattern in everything that worked. And all these healing people who were going to work their magic did four things in order. And the first one was, I called it wordlessness. They moved their consciousness into the right hemisphere of the brain and became nonverbal and completely holistic. That's, of course, an approximation, an approximate thing. But basically that. At that point, what happens is an automatic experience of a dissolution of the self and a connection with all things. And they've tracked this in the brain by wiring up meditators and looking at the place where they um, experience oneness. And it's back at the back of the brain. It's not in either of the hemispheres, really. It's centrally located in the back. Mm. 
and it's what gets activated or it's right next to what gets activated when we fall in love with another person and it drops the body boundary so we feel united with that other person. But this one drops the body boundary between us and everything. And at that point, there is observably just one thing. And it's every bit as real as the idea that things are separate. In fact, it's more real. It's experientially more real. And at that point, you realize what Jesus meant when he said, like, I'm the head, you're the hand. When the hand scratches the head, it's just taking care of itself. Of course, I take care of you. We are one thing. And of course, every other great master as well said the same thing. So that's what I meant by that. Mm, yeah. And that, yeah, and that's the... Uh... Well, here's what we got. Again, I'm I'm referring to. It's it's really great to hear you and the analogies that you have around these words. That that's huh. there is only one. <laughs> there is only one. And we sat down as kids with this incredible being, and he'd just look at us and he'd go. In Hindi, it's all one. That one. Uh. Every day we'd sit down. He'd go subek. We go, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And my famous story is, you know, I grew up uh, as a Jewish in, in Montreal, in Canada. And uh, when I got there, he said, uh, where's your cross? I'm, I'm thinking, cross? I'm like Jewish. <laughs> and what ensued was a, a simple question. Uh, and again, everybody out there, don't get bored. You've heard this story a million times, but Martha never did. I never heard it. Okay. I said, how should I meditate? Figuring you meet a, your guru, you you know, I, I wanted a mantra. Just give me a mantra. I'll be go home. It's nice. He said, meditate like Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, he felt love, not pain. And I'm like, that was like Ooh, double challenge way beyond anything on all levels regarding <laughs> I had no relationship with Jesus. Right. Until the yeah. next day when I said, Ramdas, you ask him, how did Jesus meditate? You said, meditate. How did he? And he just went back and into this meditate, his eyes closed. And then we're all sitting around. Tears came down and he, he just kept saying, you don't understand. He became Christ, basically. Oh. You, you don't understand. He was lost in love with every sentient being. Wow. He, he lived for every, you know, he went on like, you, and he kept saying, you don't understand. And I was like, whatever, my mind was wiped out. But the mm. deepest part of myself, uh, the, the true nature that we've been talking about, that understood in that moment. And, right. Yeah. And, and it does. It's always there watching and listening and mm. going, yeah, that's. That's me. That's yeah. me. Yeah, exactly. That right there is exactly. me. Hey, there's a great... Can I read something from the book? I always like to read a little something from Please, the book. Please, I'd be yeah. honored. Uh, and this is under the Finding the Way into the Heart. But it's basically our whole tradition, as everybody who listens to Mind really knows, is our tradition is Bhakti Yoga, is the yoga of love, of going through the heart. And at the same time, we were given Buddhist practices, Buddhist friends, <laughs> Buddhist teachers. And it's and to this day, we still do in Maui, we get together. I mean, Sharon will be at the next retreat with uh, Bob Thurman and Krishnas Ramdas and all of us. So that mixture is, is somehow our legacy. So uh, here, here's uh, just a couple of... In his autobiography, the psychologist Carl Jung, one of the great wayfinders of inner life, 
described a conversation he had with a Native American chief named Mountain Lake, whom he regarded as a kindred spirit. I was able to talk to him, Jung recalled, as I have rarely been able, been able to talk with a European. Perhaps because of their mutual respect, Mountain Lake gave Jung a very frank account of the way his people saw Europeans, the flip side of the white men's natives are slow and stupid story. I love that. Their eyes have a staring expression, the chief said. Just think of us right now, last night. Okay, I won't even go there. Uh, uh, this is after the uh, president's speech. Uh, they, they are always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They are always uneasy and restless. We do not know what they want. We do not understand them. We think they are all mad. Shit. Yeah. Jung asked Chief Mountain Lake to elaborate. Why exactly did white people seem so insane to the Indians? Well, they say they think with their heads, responded Mountain Lake. Why, of course, said Jung. What do you think with? We think here, said Chief Mountain Lake, and he pointed to his heart. Right? That's what it's all about. I mean, it's, it sounds overly simplistic, but to me, there ain't nothing else. I mean, and, uh, no. you know, that we get, uh, move into that, whatever you want to call it, soul, spiritual heart, Ramdas calls it loving awareness, yeah. um, which I think is a great term because that's, that really is so expansive, allows yeah. us to have a perch from which we can really, um, be quite aware and non-judgmental about our mm. human foibles. So, I yeah. anyhow, I love that thing. I never knew that story of Jung and and this uh, Native yeah. American. And they were right. You know, there are more afferent nerves going from the heart to the brain than the other way. And if people lose their intellectual capacity, like they have a stroke, they have no trouble making good choices. But if they lose the emotional part of the brain, they just are like computers that churn out data and cannot they don't know what they want they don't know what to do they can't make any decisions at all so in asia they say in china which was my as an undergraduate major in chinese oh. they say the mind is a wonderful servant but, but a terrible master yeah yeah and our whole culture keeps the mind as master yeah. and it should be the servant of this yeah. for sure absolutely so wonderful to meet you martha <laughs> It's so wonderful to meet you. I've been, you know, all the people that you're talking about, I've been reading and following online and listening to tapes mm. my whole adult life. So this is a huge honor and I'm very grateful for it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And everybody, you go to uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling and you go to the show notes and uh, we'll have uh, Martha's books up there, links to them. And then, now the big question though, mm. what about, like having a session with you is is that allowed Ooh. i don't so much do um individual sessions i have a kind of online um i don't know i guess it's a training but it, it puts all the methodology i've ever used for myself out there huh. and um you can find it if you go to my website it's like an eight-month course that, where you every technology of i call it technology even if it's something that you do with your mind or your heart um, every methodology I've ever used is there. And my whole way of dealing with people was to try to work myself out of a job, right? You teach people to find their own 
my first self-help book was called Finding Your Own North Star, because I don't know where you're supposed to go, but you do. And there are ways to clear away the clutter and know what you know. Trust yourself, as you just said. Mm. So that's that's the best I can offer people in terms of coaching anymore. Really? I was. Yeah, I wanted to sign up. I was going to come over. I, mean, I don't know where the over is, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm too busy, like eating cheese in my pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> uh, so thank you again, Martha. And thank uh, every- you so much, Raghu. It's just a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Same here. And we she we shall see you all again next week on uh, Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Namaste. Thanks again.